Hey, we are uh, launching our Lent service. We were going to launch it last week, but we had a, a, an incredible opportunity for Faith Promise. So we, we, we it, Lent did start last week. In fact, a week from Wednesday last week, uh, Lent started. Um, and I'm just going to fill. I'm just going to give you a little bit of background information. I know we are a Protestant church. Um, Protestant churches are rediscovering more and more uh, the power of these these church calendar seasons that. Um, Liturgical churches, Catholic church, generally Anglican, whatever. Um, as I, even as I talk about this, if you have that background and you're thinking that guy doesn't know what he's talking about, yes and no. I'll tell you as much as I know, but I'm not. I wasn't raised Catholic, and so some of you know more. But I'm just going to kind of sketch it out here for the rest of us. Um, Lent is 46 days starts 46 days before Easter. Starts on that Wednesday. So you're asking, well, 46 days, why is it a 40-day season? Well, once you take out the six Sundays, you're left with 40 days. See, biblically speaking, in the Christian world, we never fast on Sunday. Sunday is always a celebration day because we're celebrating the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we never, ever fast on Sunday. Sunday is always a celebration. So you remove those six days and you got 40 days of Lent. Um, so if you're thinking, do I get a break from fasting Recognize that you're fasting only 40 days. Six of those days on Sundays cut loose, right? To a certain degree, it's, it's okay to cut loose on Sunday because it's a day of celebration. So you can, you know, six days of fasting, take a break, six more days of fasting, a little bit. Yeah, anyway. Um, so on Sundays during Lent, um, we celebrate, but, but the 40-day the season is really a, a time of um, remembering um, fasting as Douglas, and I'm not even going to try to add anything to what Douglas said. He did a beautiful job. And so what I want to talk about this morning is another aspect of Lent um, called the lament, lamenting. Um, but Lent is, is fasting, lamenting, repentance, reflection, anticipation, and really ultimately it's about celebration, right? We are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And this is kind of the build-up period. So again, why 40 days? Um, represents Christ's time of temptation in the desert. Matthew 4, 1 and 2, we read this, when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and well, he should be. So Lent, a very, very intensely introspective time, right, as we examine our sinful natures, um, which is always <laughs> kind of fun, um, and return to the God that we have through our rebellion this time and time again disappointed, right? So we, we, we kind of focus on not so much good things at, at the beginning, just at the beginning, right? We're, we're looking at the not good stuff um, in our lives. Um, Lent's also an opportunity to contemplate what the Lord did on the cross. And again, it wasn't pretty. It was, it, it'll... It'll break you. You spend too much time thinking about that. It will just, it will just break you. Um, but ultimately, the purpose of Lent, it doesn't stop at sadness and, and despair, right? The point of Lent is that it points us to the hope of the resurrection and the day when every tear will be dried. Revelations 21 says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, that stuff, has passed away. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So step one in this process, right, the fun part, it's an examination of our hearts, our sinful, wayward, self-seeking, others-sacrificing hearts. But Pastor Jerry, right, I don't have that kind of heart. And I would respond, when's the last time you really looked? Have you really done a search? And maybe you'll say, well, Pastor Jerry, I have, and I still haven't found anything. Well, let me, let me challenge you. Let, let, let's have God look around, right? Maybe you're not looking very closely. Um, so let's, let's turn this task over to God. In, in, in Psalm 139, it says this, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Now listen, this process, it doesn't have to be a horrible thing. It, let me back up. It can be really, really painful at the beginning again as we recognize things that we don't like about ourselves and we accept those things about ourselves. But, but if the goal is finding things that will ruin other things down the line, then this is a good exercise. This is something we want to do. Again, it'll be painful. It's like going to the dentist. It's painful while you sit there, but in the months and years afterwards, you'll be able to chew your food. So, right, there's joy at the end. If you don't take care of your teeth, you're not going to be eating anything, right? You're going to be sucking life through a straw. So, right, there's that. My wife and I went to a marriage seminar. It wasn't counseling. It's a marriage seminar, and it was an offer from the district, and we both we were kind of looking at each other going, but do we really, we're good, Right? We, we, we enjoy our marriage. We're really happy in our marriage. And we started thinking, like, well, if we go, we might find something wrong. What to do, what to do, what to do. So we finally decided, well, let's go. Because, again, at the end of the day, if we find something that needs addressing, it needs to be addressed. Because on down the road, it could become a very, very big problem. And I'll just be honest with you, a couple of things fell by the wayside within, what, three days? I think I stopped opening your door. I... I, I I swore to myself, I will open your door because I love you. But there were other things that lasted and, and continued to last to this day that we, we addressed. We didn't, we didn't even recognize. We kind of did maybe, but it spelled it out for us. It gave us words and language to say, oh, ooh, you, you guys need to focus on this. So it was a very, 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 it was, it was a great thing, right? Um, now, the problem is we all want to avoid those things that reveal our weaknesses and make us uncomfortable, Right? When confronted with sin, we want to say, that isn't the person I am. Every time I, I, I build a sermon, I start getting ready for it, and I know in my mind at the very beginning, if I preach this just straight out of the box, every person goes, well, that's not me. <laughs> that's not me. Literally, part of my task when I step up in here is, is to convince you all that this is you. <laughs> it is. And sometimes it's really easy, and, and sometimes it's, it's not so easy. <laughs> i got to remind you, you're horrible. No, that, no, that's not where I'm going with this. Okay. Um, but often exactly this, this, this horrible person that we find in the biblical mirror, right, um, that's the person we are. And being confronted with the sin, we need to recognize it's a mercy, right? It's not a cause for defensiveness. This is a gift from God that he offers us. It's God setting us free from whatever it is that's holding us back, that's binding us, that's keeping us enslaved. And again, it's not persecution for your faith. It's God calling attention to those things that need his purifying. We really do have to keep our hearts soft. It's so easy to kind of get hard-hearted once we, we believe that we're okay, right? All the things that we notice on the surface, we took care of them. 
And from here on out, well, God will cover, right? So we, we kind of stop trying. But things spiral out of control so quickly, so quickly that if we're not being diligent. Ideally, this examination of truthful, again, I kind of alluded to this. I said it outright several times. It's going to be painful at the beginning. It, it will be. If you're really, really looking, I remember I went and I saw the movie The Passion with our church in Fairfield, Northern California. Um, and in that movie, um, it was, it was it, and if you've seen The Passion, just, just horrific. It just, you can't watch it without just being broken. And I made a comment after to my pastor. I said, and if you've seen the movie, you'll understand what I'm saying. Why all the blood and gore? I mean, it just went on and on. And, and he turned on me like, like a cat. And he got right in my face. He said, if you don't recognize your sin and the depths of your sin and the damage that your sin does, and you don't get it at all. And I'm just like, whoa, okay, whoa. And it, but he made me think. He made me realize that, yeah, sometimes we just, we, oh, I just made a judgment error. Oh, I made a mistake. You know, no big deal. You know what? It is a big deal. It's always a huge, sin is a big deal at the beginning, not so much, but it grows. It's a weed. It, it infests every part of our lives. So what does it mean to lament? That's really what I want to talk about this morning, lament. We get the idea of lament from the Hebrew word kina. It's a dirge, right? Or a, a, a funeral song is what it is. Think New Orleans, right? Going down the street, and it's, it's very, very sad, kind of melancholy, and then all of a sudden, what do they do? They, they bust into a, this celebration, it, right? The, the, this song, these songs from New Orleans, they're taking you on a journey, a journey that you might not be, have the wherewithal to take yourself, but these songs... These songs from the Bible, these laments, they give us words, again, that we might not have the wherewithal to say. We want to, we, we can't figure out a way to express, and these words help us, right? And if we don't have these laments to help us lament, help us process our emotions, a lot of times we kind of go off the deep end. We start saying crazy stuff, right? We, we, it becomes um, uncontrolled chaos, and nothing good comes out of it. We just end up angry, and everyone around us um, is angry. But that's not the, that's not the, the end product of, a, of a, a real biblical lament. And now, because it's a song, again, it's not an open-ended venting of anger and confusion, right? The song has a route. It has a path. Again, and, and, and the lament will take you, will walk you along that path in ways that you might not have known that if you walk this way, you will find healing. You resist it. But these laments, they force you to walk where you would not choose to walk by yourself. And there's incredible power in the laments because, again, they give you the words that you wouldn't have thought yourself. But once you say them, they break you. They, they were just the right words. They were spirit-filled words. And without these patterns, these laments... Right? It's so easy to lash out and sin in our anger. So, but God's got a better plan, a better way to process these feelings that so, over, so quickly and easily overwhelm us. Um, Dr. Mark Rogrop, he wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And in this book, he argues that when we enter the world, we enter the world crying, and we basically never stop crying. 
That, that's, that's the story of humanity. In fact, if you listen to the Apostle Paul, that's the story of all creation. All creation, right? It's born crying, and it never stops crying. Um, to cry is human, and death is the ultimate reminder that something just isn't right in this world. And there's a lot of other reminders, right? We got addictions. We got broken marriages. We have all that kind of thing, abuse, cancer, loneliness. And we don't stop crying after birth. He, he, he goes on and on and on about this because the world is broken. And while tears and sorrow are a part of our humanity, there is a, an often neglected biblical pattern that we can lean into and that we can follow and that we can really kind of wrap our arms around um, from making our way through this incredibly broken world filled with broken people who want to hurt us. <laughs> Lament is not the same as crying, though, right? It's, it's different than crying. To cry is human, right? We recognize this. I remember when my dad died. It was about a decade ago, 2012. Um, and I don't think I've ever cried that much in my life. I did not know I had that many tears. Um, as the years have gone by, again, it's been a decade now. If I spend just a couple minutes thinking about it, the tears come back, but not so long and so uncontrollable, right? It, it never goes. You, you, many of you have experienced um, death in a family. And, and those of you who have been through the death of a, of a child or a grandchild or a, a spouse, I have not, I can't imagine that's, that's something different. But when my dad died, again, lots and lots of tears. But here's the crazy thing. I don't think I really lamented, biblically lamented, because I didn't need to. I, I, I wasn't confused. I wasn't angry. I understood what happened. I understood my dad was a Christian. I understood where he was going. I, I had no worries. I wasn't shaking my fist at God. Everything, and, and I wasn't shaking my fist at God, and I wasn't angry because I understood. I understood that Christ defeated the grave. I, I, I knew all these things, so I didn't, I, I wasn't at, now there are other times in my life, even up till now, that I will still shake my fist at God. In fact, years before, and again, I, 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 I carefully say I didn't necessarily lament. I cried a lot, but I didn't really lament. Now, now there's another situation in my life, and my wife and I went through, we went through infertility. In we had our first daughter, and then for a variety of reasons, we simply could not have another child, and we lamented. We shook our fist at God. We were angry. We vented. Um, but it was a proper lament, and I'm going I'm to explain in just a little bit why and how it was so different than when my dad died, how those, those feelings were just a little bit different when we experienced infertility. Again, the difference, just without telling the whole story, there was no anger and confusion with dad, but with infertility, there was a huge amount of anger and confusion. Why? Why? Why not? God, what did we do wrong? I mean, all those feelings we were processing, and it's hard to keep your, your faith and your ground in, in those kind of situations. So there's that difference. I'm going to dwell a little bit longer on, the, on these differences. Um, but to let you know, the Bible's filled with this song of sorrow. It's not only in the book of Psalms. Um, it's, it's, it's throughout the Bible, a lot in the Old Testament. I'm just going to list off a few here. If you've got pencil and paper, you want to write them down, check them out, homework. Uh, some of the Psalms are 10, 13, 22. Psalm 22 is the, the Psalm that Jesus started speaking from the cross, right? And the people knew this lament, and they knew how it ended. We're going to get to that. 
Uh, 63, 69, 74, 77, 70. And there's, there's like 40, I, I think, 40 laments. Play, get on the internet, you can check it out. Um, the book of Lamentation has five laments, right? If you ever bust open that book, basically five laments back to back that weep over the destruction of, of Jerusalem. But the lament, again, is different from crying because a lament is a form of prayer, right? When I was crying out because my dad had died, I wasn't necessarily praying. I was just hurting. I wasn't directing my feelings or my thoughts to anybody in particular, right? I, I really didn't want anybody to see me because I was just blubbering and, you know. But the lament, it's more than just an expression of sorrow or a venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain, that's what it does. It's a conversation with God about your pain. And it has a unique set of purposes as it drives toward that goal. The lament is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, and our sorrows, helping us to renew our confidence in God. And that's, that's the end product of a good lament, right? It's a, it's a lousy lament if we don't end with an, a renewed confidence in God. It was just venting. It was just anger, but when we arrive at that last step of trusting in God, that's a good lament. And according to the Bible Project producers, it's an online video. Um, I checked it out. It's amazing. Some of you have been checking it out. Um, the, the, the video on the book of Lamentations, right, just helped me kind of get a big, big, big picture grip on everything. Um, and, and in, the, in the, this video, um, the authors, they outline at least three ways that this invitation to lament helps us deal with both our own brokenness and the brokenness in the world around us, right? First of all, the lament is a healthy biblical form of protest, right? You don't have to go out with signs. You don't have to scream things at people, but the lament is your, it's your time to raise your fist to God, right? Hold your sign, do whatever you want to do, but the lament is the proper way for you to be angry, right? To, to, to be confused, to, to process all these emotions, to draw everyone's attention, including God's, to the injustices that are being played out in your life that shouldn't be or shouldn't be allowed to be, right? The lament is a healthy and biblical way to process these emotions. It's also a way to, well, it's a, it's a way to process emotions, um, but it's never a place to wallow in guilt or shame or feelings of failure. I mean, that, that, that's where it's very easy to go. Once we start being introspective and we get belly button glazing, gazing, and, and, and we, 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 we kind of lose our perspective, right? Why, why are we doing this? We're doing this to love other people, not to, you know, discover every nook and cranny in our body. That's not, not the point of it. Now, lamenting can easily overwhelm us with feelings of not being enough or not doing enough. But that's not the point of the lament, I don't need to understand something here. As you are lamenting and as you are, with God's help, examining your heart and, and he's finding things and, and it's making you a little bit nervous, he, he's, he's, he's started a list now, right? It wasn't just two or three things. He's got a list going on and, and immediately, you know, all those, again, guilt and shame and, and feelings of failure just completely overwhelm us. But we need to understand a couple things about biblical guilt and a worldly guilt, and a, and a biblical shame, and a worldly shame. When it comes to being guilty, there's, there's a state of being guilty. Romans 3.23 says we're all, we've all sinned, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That, that's a fact, all right? But that fact has been remedied by the blood and body of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? So we're no longer in a state of guilt, but there's also a feeling of guilt, and this is where Satan loves to put us. He loves us 
feeling like we're still guilty, like we're never not guilty. Loves that. That's a feeling of guilt, and that's not biblical guilt. In the Bible, there is a state of guilt, and then there is a solution. There's a sacrifice. There's Christ. And then shame, right? We weren't meant to experience this kind. I mean, there is a godly shame, a godly kind of sorrow, in which if I've sinned and I've hurt one of you, that's where I'm feeling the pain. But then there's a worldly kind of shame in which I've hurt you and the world is looking on and I'm worried about my reputation, right? That's a worldly shame. All I care about is, well, what will people think about me? We're a godly shame. My whole concern is what did I do to the other person? What did I do to their reputation, right? How did I harm them? And finally, it's a place to voice confusion, to lament well. Suffering drives us to ask the tough questions about God's character and about his promises. And it's okay, right? He, he literally invites us to voice all of these emotions and concerns, confusion, anger. Laments basically restore sacred dignity to human suffering. Human suffering isn't a bad thing. It, it's a part of our life here on earth. And we shouldn't feel horrible about it because there's a remedy offered us. And these human words to God have now become God's word to us, these, these laments. And in his study of the biblical and Christian lament, Vogelgrop sees four essential elements to nearly all the, the laments. And he's gonna hi, I'm going to highlight, I'm, I'm kind of using his work here, I'm going to highlight each of these four elements if you go home today and you start looking at some of those psalms I gave you, 73, 77, 79, 13, any of those, I want to I challenge you, kind of your homework, to go home and find these four elements in any of the laments, see if you can find these. And they're always not, not always in this order. But the, the key, the key, one of the key things about a, a lament um, is that it begins by an address to God. This is, again, Psalm 13. I'm going to use Psalm 13 to illustrate these four things. How long, Lord? And that, that's the big phrase, right? If you see at the beginning of a passage that starts, how long, Lord, you know you're about to be lamenting, right? You're going to launch right there. How long, Lord, how long will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The point is, and this is crucial, the point is the person decided to talk to God about their pain rather than running from God. And so often that, that's our move. Rather than to talk to God about it, we're like, we're, we're either ashamed or we're angry with them or, or I, I, I just don't want to talk about it right now. It's like, well, you're not going to get anywhere then. <laughs> Let's talk. Let's talk. And so to, to lament well begins with, hey, God, I need to talk because I feel like you're not listening to me. I don't feel you. I don't see you. I... How long, right? How long? And then every lament, there's a complaint, right? There's some kind of complaint. Verse 2, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart, right? So he's sad. That's, that's the big deal. He's not angry. He's sad. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Again, more than a sinful rehearsing of our anger, the biblical lament humbly and honestly identifies the pain, identifies our questions, identifies our frustrations. Just very honest. It's, you know. And then the third, boldly ask for help. Right? Seeking God's help while in pain, that is an act of faith. Right? That's a huge act of faith. Talking to God instead of getting angry and embittered, it requires a lot of 
Belief in the Bible, a lot of faith, a lot of, a lot of conviction, right? Laying out your messy struggles, all the ways that you've messed up, what you keep asking God to fix, that takes gumption. <laughs> that takes courage. Knowing that you're the cause of most of it, and yet we still, God, help me. I know, I know, I, I know what I did. I know what I said, but please help me anyway. Please help me. That requires, yeah, that requires faith. He writes this, laments, turn toward God when sorrow tempts you to run from him. Right? Unending, unremitting sorrow can create either a deadly silence, right, as we give in to despair. Right? There's just too much to do. I can't do anything, so I'll go home and take a nap. Right? A deadly silence in despair or denial. Oh, everything's fine. I don't see any problems. Everybody's fine. Everybody's beautiful. No problems in the world. Or if it's not deadly science, silence, we get this deafening roar, right, where we scream our opinions at people we've never met, knowing full well that we'll never actually have to sit down with them and match our faith with the words we threw out there, knowing that we would never actually talk with them. But the lament, right, invites us to dare to hope in God's promises as we ask for his help. Third, three and four, verse three and four, look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. I call on him, absolutely call on him. And then the final element to the lament, and this is the most important part, is choose to trust. This, this is where all laments end. This is all roads end at tr- choosing to trust God Verses 5 and 6, but I trust in your unfailing love. Despite everything that I just said, Lord, (laughs) despite everything I'm feeling, despite all my questions, all my frustrations, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Right? More than the stages of grief. You've heard of the stages of grief, right? Y'all... There's the anger, there's the denial, and you finally end up at, at acceptance, right? This is so much more than the stages of grief, right? The stages of grief after all the kicking and screaming and the begging and the pleading, we kind of have to finally fatalistically accept our fate, right? That's, that's stage five. But with the lament, there's no stage five. We don't have to accept the pain and misery around us, right? The lament is the prayer language for God's people who live in a messed up world, messed up by sin, It's how we talk to God about our sorrows as he renews our hope in him. To cry is human, but to lament is Christian. Get a huge difference between the two. Just recognize this. The practice of lament is one of those theologically informed actions, one of the best theologically informed actions that one can take because we know this. Everybody cries. We all cry. In fact, when babies come in here, I I tell parents, when your baby starts crying, don't take them out of the sanctuary. Right, I've said this before, they're the only person in the sanctuary being honest, right? Half of you don't want to be here, right? And the baby's like, right, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm itchy, and for some reason it stinks. What's the problem, Mom, right? They're just honest. Love, baby's crying. Everybody cries. But in the Christian lament, we know that God is loving and good and will deliver on his promises. We know the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And yet we still experience pain and sorrow. So we know, and yet, 
Lament is the language for living between these two places, the hard life and trusting in God's love. It's the prayer for people who are waiting for the day that Jesus will return and, and make everything right again. We don't just mourn, right? We long for, we pray for, and we fully expect God to end the pain. Quite appropriately, you hear these words of Paul, most funerals and memorials. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death who have died so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have died, fallen asleep in him. See, what Paul's talking about here is the difference between a pie-in-the-sky kind of hope, right? The kind of hope where you didn't study the night before, you went out and did whatever, and then you prayed, oh, Lord, give me a good grade. Okay, that's one kind of hope. That's not, that's not what Paul's talking about. The different kind of hope is when you studied and you prayed and you, you attended every lecture and you read every page of the book of the assigned reading, and then you pray, Lord, help me get a good grade. Right? That's a biblical hope. That's a, that's a hope built on faith. Right? Faith that you studied, that you know the material, so you have a real hope to get a good job. I know I always hoped on my way to school that it would burn down on the way. That, that's not a biblical hope. Right? Unless I'm Bart Simpson, it's, it's not going to happen. That school is not going anywhere. Never did. We're just saying. Laments interpret the world through the biblical lens. Christians lament rather than mourn because we know the long arc of God's plan, right? There's the creation and the fall, but there's also the redemption and the restoration. That's what gives us hope. I want to close with a passage read earlier from the book of Lamentations. Um, again, the book is arranged. If you want to go home and check it out, it's an amazing book. Uh, five laments, all written as acrostics, right? 22 verses, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 22 verses. So chapter 1, 22 verses, uh, just lament. Chapter 2, 22 verses, following the letters of the alphabet. And then, and then in chapter 3, he really gets going, and he gives three verses to every one of the letters. So you got 66 verses. And then it goes back to chapter 4, back to the 22 letters, 22 verses. And then you arrive at chapter 5, and it's got the 22 letters, but they're all jumbled, right? They're all over. The, they're, they're not in order. And, and, and you get the impression that the writer, Jeremiah, we, you know, we don't know a lot of theories about that, but whoever it was, the writer is expressing this idea that he has examined A to Z, all the whys and what do, what do we do nows and, and come up empty. He comes up with, with, with no answers at all, right? That's, that's, that's the lament. That's a lament. See, the writer had just witnessed and experienced the fall of Jerusalem and God's wrath, and he was appalled. Right, you see the picture. It was a horrific event. If you read the fourth chapter four of Lamentations, it's difficult to read because in that lamentation, you read about what was happening in Jerusalem during the siege, and it was horrible. And so this is what Jeremiah, or the writer, experienced. But the writer gets it. This is the kicker. Watch this. The writer understands what happened shouldn't be a surprise, right? He knows the depths of his own sin and particularly the pain for others caused by his sin. And he knows the sins of the Israelites and the pain caused for others by those sins. 
In other words, he knows his hardship and that of Jerusalem is simply a form of God's perfect justice. All right, let me say that again. He knows his hardship and that of Jerusalem is simply a form of God's perfect justice, right? God promised no less unless they obeyed him, and they didn't. So the writers say, like, this shouldn't be a surprise. This is, this is one of God's promises. And you know what? God doesn't back out on his promises. Whatever he says is going to happen is going to happen. And the crazy thing, strangely enough, this gives the writer and us the fact that God is perfect in his judgment and that he did that gives us hope. And it gave Jeremiah, whoever the writer was, gave them hope. What? How could that give him hope? How can that give us hope? Listen to this. This is in chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. I remember my affliction and my wanderings, the bitterness and the gall. I remember everything I did. I remember what I said. I remember the horrible things I did. I remember how I felt. I remember the pain I caused other people. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast in me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now watch this. This is amazing. The writer's arguing that if God is consistent enough to bring his justice on human evil, which he just did on Jerusalem, then he will also be consistent with his covenantal promise to not allow evil to prevail or have the final word. Yeah, you get his, his logic, right? If God is perfect in his judgment, he perfectly keeps his promises of judgment, well, by golly, he's also going to be perfect in his promises to not let evil defeat us, to not let evil have the last say. Love wins in the end. That's, that's a promise, Right? And we saw this promise fulfilled. The writer's like, hey, we can expect this promise also. It's going to happen. It's just going to happen. God's perfect and promised judgment becomes the seedbed of hope. The writer continues, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions or his mercies, some of your versions have, his compassions, his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. I will trust in him, I will hope in him, and I'll stop complaining. Interesting, the paradox, like God is inviting us to complain, but at the end of the complaint, we can stop complaining because he heard us and we know we can trust him. So hope, trust in him. As we prepare our hearts to receive and celebrate communion this morning, we're reminded by the broken and bloodied body of Jesus of God's perfect and promised judgment. Because of and by way of these elements, when we place our faith in what Jesus did to us, we have hope. It's not a pie-in-the-sky hope, but a real hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His mercies never fail. They're renewed every morning. And then there's a lot, <clears throat> a verse. And I want to just stop on this verse for a moment. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That, that's witness. When we do this, it's not supposed to stay here. What Christ did and what we just participated in is supposed to happen out there now. 
And in the fifth lament in the book of Lamentations, the writer turns to all, he, he just lifts up the, everybody around Jerusalem, the moms, the children, the dads. He, he lifts them all up and, and, and we're reminded that it's not just about us. Um, he, he's asked us to care and love the rest of the world and bring the rest of the world into the pen, right? My wife and I, we were watching the news and she commented, watching the Ukraine, the news about Ukraine. And she said, how, how horrible. First they, you know, get through all the COVID and then this, right on the back end of it. These poor, how it's horrible for them. We're called to lift them up. I saw an interview with Johnny Cash. Love Johnny Cash. So he has a song, Men in Black. And this was way back in the 70s. I think it was Merv Griffin. I, I didn't even recognize the talk show host. I was one of those guys. And in it, Cash describes, well, he's asked why he wears black. And he says he described the, the poverty and the war and the sin that plagues every city in this song. And he ends the song by saying, until things are better, until things are brighter, I'm the man in black. What he was saying is, I, I wear black to represent the broken people, the downtrodden, the people who don't have a voice, who don't have that space. I, I wear black for them. I, I speak for them. And I'm not saying that we need to be wearing black. I, I agree with Douglas. We need to be salt and light. We don't, right? Nobody wants to hang out with Christians who are like that. But what I'm saying is somebody needs to draw attention to the injustices around that either shouldn't be or shouldn't be allowed to be. Somebody needs to provide a safe place to vent anger and dismay at the destructive power of sin. And somebody needs to give voice to the confusion and suffering and provide the space to ask the tough questions about God's character and promises and know that it's okay to vent and say those things. Someone needs to stand up for those who can't. That's all Johnny Cash is saying, and that's what God's word is telling us. We need to stand for those who can't. We can give a voice to people who have no voice, but we've got to walk out with this reality. We can't stay here. Bow your heads, Father, thank you. Thank you for this language that you give us, a way to process crazy emotions, a way to, to voice confusion and just a safe way to shake our fist and know that it's okay. And finally, Father, we, we have hope in the midst of COVID and in Ukraine and everything horrible about this world. There's a lot of good things, but there's a lot of bad stuff. We know the end of the story. So we have hope, a real hope. Thank you, Father. Your son's name I pray.